Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm Kristen Padilla, co-host of the Beeson Podcast. In case you missed last week's episode, we are replaying some of our greatest hits on the podcast during the summer while our podcast team takes a break to plan for the next season. By the way, the new season will begin on August 3rd. Last week, we played for you a conversation with Dr. Andrew Westmoreland from 2013. Today, we want to play for you a conversation our former host, Dr. Timothy George, had with Ellen Vaughn in 2015 called In the Garbage Slums of Cairo. Ellen is the author of Mom and Maggie, the untold story of one woman's mission to love the forgotten children of Egypt's garbage slums. And in this episode, she shares about the amazing story of Mama Maggie. Ellen Vaughn is a New York Times bestselling author and inspirational speaker. We hope you will enjoy listening to this episode from our archives. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. I have the honor today of speaking with Ellen Vaughn. She's been a friend of mine for a long time. We've worked together in the past with Chuck Colson and Prison Fellowship Ministries. And now we share an assignment together. We're both senior fellows of the newly formed Wilberforce Initiative. We may say a little bit about that as we move along. But my reason for talking to Ellen today is to profile her brand new book, Mama Maggie. It's a book published by Thomas Nelson, The Untold Story of One Woman's Mission to Love the Forgotten Children of Egypt's Garbage Slums. You're going to want to hear this story about Mama Maggie. So, Ellen, welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you guys. Now, let's begin by just telling us, who is Mama Maggie? Well, uh, it was interesting for me, but you sign on to write a book about this woman, that's the first thing you need to discover. Who is Mama Maggie? And she is an uh, uh, Egyptian woman, comes from an upper-class Egyptian background, uh, very wealthy, strong believer in Jesus, and she saw what was happening in the garbage farms of Cairo, and she could not turn away. So she started a ministry to work with the people there. And and that's the story that we were drawn to write when we took on this book. And she's been called the Mother Teresa of Egypt mm-hmm. because of this yeah, ministry yeah. that she has. Now, tell, me, tell yeah. us about her background, her faith, and so forth. Well, and it's, it's really great that she's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize about six times, you know. So um, members of Congress and in Washington, D.C., and other people who, who nominate for such things have seen mm-hmm. her work that she's done and said, whoa, this is, this is great stuff. But again, she was an upper-class Egyptian woman, had every advantage in terms of her family of origin. Uh, she was a university professor and uh, at the American came, University of Cairo, right? Right, right, which is pretty prestigious, yeah, yeah. you know. And and she went with members of her church, you know, maybe twice a year, you know, um, Christmas and Easter, <laughs> into the garbage slums, like many of us might do with our own churches here in the U.S. Go to poor areas. But what happened with Maggie Gabron is she went into those areas, 
And she realized, oh my goodness, this this is a life I couldn't even imagine. Why was I born into wealth? Why did why was I born into all these um, situations of advantage? I could have been, you know, that could have been my child living in in a big pile of garbage. That could have been me. And so she really felt like, you know, I have a choice. Oh Lord Jesus, you know, her choice was I can either turn toward that and really try to do something to make a difference, or I can kind of turn away and keep coming twice a year. Now, uh, there actually is a place in Cairo called the Garbage District, right? Mm-hmm. You, yeah, you yeah. Describe that you to know, us and how, how, well, how do people live? Uh, why, why do people live there? Well, <laughs> um, it's not a matter of choice, most right. probably, right? <laughs> right. Right. So you fly into Cairo, you, you come in over, you see the, the, the Nile River and that green cataract of, of where things are, are mm. green and beautiful. Mm-hmm. The pyramids and you feel like, oh my gosh, these are ancient, ancient lands. And then in Cairo, there are about six different garbage districts. The biggest one is called Makatam and it houses about 50,000, uh, poor, people who have no other place to live, and most of them are Coptic Christians. Mm. Now, they have come from the rural countryside. They've been uh, abused and persecuted, maybe, by the majority religion in those areas. They have nowhere else to go. They flee. They run. They go um, to this place in Cairo, and uh, there's nothing for them to do. And so, the, the garbage district, it's not like living on the edge of the garbage dump. I've been in poor places around the world. I've seen that. For these people, the garbage is, it's their livelihood. They are the garbage sorters of Cairo. So the sorters for about 22 million people. And they go out in the mornings, these um, people, and they have maybe an emaciated donkey pulling a wooden donkey cart and they go into different neighborhoods, and they're calling out, garbage, garbage, garbage. They're the garbage people. So they gather the garbage, they bring it back home, and they sort it for maybe what we would consider some pennies a day. Kind of resale for at, at whatever yeah, they can get yeah. for it. Yeah, Exactly. It is the most efficient recycling on the yeah. planet. I mean, right. they do a great, great job. But they they live uh, in a very poor place. They are looked down on by many, many people. They are Coptic Christians, which is sort of a cultural um, note on them. They they may have the cross tattooed on their wrist, but they don't know what that means. Yeah. Okay? Tell us what Coptic, what Coptic Christianity is. Some of yeah. our listeners well, may not know. Right, and if I could do that, I would be. It would be amazing. I could do it in a very short period of time. But you know, I'm an evangelical Christian. I go into Cairo, go into Egypt, and oh my goodness, I am so um, taken by this ancient faith. Coptic Christianity in Egypt is like Orthodox Christianity in other parts of the world. And so, one of Jesus's friends, Mark, goes into Egypt, right? And he spreads the gospel and before he is martyred in Alexandria, Egypt, sometime in the end of the first century. And so Coptic Christianity, all it meant was Egyptian Christians. And it spread, it spread, it spread. And so Egypt was primor- primarily Coptic um, Christians until about the 7th century. And then Islam began to spread. Eventually, over the course of the years, 
Islam spread more and more. And so what you have today is Egypt is the biggest Christian minority in the Middle East. It's 90% Muslim, about 10% Christian, mostly Coptic Christians and ancient Orthodox belief, as well as some evangelicals and Catholics and others. Mm-hmm. So it's an ancient uh, tradition within the Christian mm-hmm. family, going mm-hmm. back to the mm-hmm. very earliest days of the apostles in the early church. Mm-hmm. You know, one, one of the uh, figures I have my students read when I teach uh, Christian history is St. Anthony. And mm-hmm. he exactly. com- comes yeah. out of that matrix, doesn't he? Yes, he does. And it, for me to go to his ancient monastery with Mama Maggie, you know, you you, uh, you proceed out of Cairo, you go through the desert, desert, you get to the Red Sea, you take a right turn, and then you're at his monastery. This is from what, the 3rd century? Three, well, the 4th century, 363, it was, they said that this monastery was built. So very, very early in the mm-hmm. Christian story, soon after yeah. the uh, conversion of Constantine and pri- yes, prior yes, to the time of Augustine. Right, and the Desert Fathers, the Desert Mothers. I never knew the Desert Mothers existed. Yeah, so I yeah. wrote this book. They kind of so, get left out of the story, don't they? Yeah, they do. But... You know, this incredible tradition of courage and of faith. And, you know, what I found, too, um, was such a sense of of martyrdom. Mm. You know, these people have been dying for their Christian faith for thousands of years. Now, I want to get back to the Mama Maggie story in a minute, but uh, just, just the fact that you mentioned that now, the martyrdom, uh, we've heard recently, at least in this country, about the Coptic mm. Christians who were beheaded in Libya. Uh, on mm-hmm. the on the the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, and many of those were believers, weren't they? Coptic Christians who were were believers. Well, from what I understand, they they weren't just cultural cops; they were people who knew Jesus personally. And when I met with Mama Maggie when the book was released, she came to Washington D.C., the hub of the universe where I live, and um, so she told us about how uh, seven of those twenty one were boys that she had ministered to when they were young. These were guys who knew the scriptures. Mama Maggie is huge on biblical um, teaching, on scriptural memorization. Um, and these guys who died on that beach in Libya, they weren't just sort of cop- Coptic Christians by name. They uh, were whispering the name of Jesus as they died. Yeah. Wow. That was so impressive to hear that and see that in the face of uh, mm-hmm. this kind of uh, almost unbelievable uh, terrorist activity. Oh, my Pri- goodness. Yeah. Uh, primarily because they were Christians. I mean, that's why they were designated for that kind of treatment. Yeah. They were sought out by ISIS. Um, some of their cousins and others uh, sort of remain to tell the tale, if you will. Mm. And so what, what the ISIS guys did is they went into that place in Libya where these migrant workers were living. They, where are the Christians? Where are the Christians? Yeah. And they took those guys yeah. because they were Christians. Now, your book, uh, you've written this book with Dr. Marty McCary, who is a professor at Johns Hopkins University. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit mm-hmm. about how your collaboration came together and really what, uh, how this story developed in your, your own writing of it. Yeah, well, what a gift. You know, I feel like my calling from God is to write stories of what the Lord God is doing around the world in people's lives. And Marty McCary approached me, let's see, in the summer of 2013 pretty volatile time in Egypt. He knew of of the story because he, as a a doctor from Johns Hopkins, had taken a medical team over to the garbage slums of Cairo. 
and and he had taken in people to to work with the the basic medical needs of these poor children, many of whom die before they are five years old. Uh, there are rats. There is every kind of disease. This is a bad situation. So Marty took in a medical team to this place, and he saw the story that Mama Maggie is telling with her life. And he said, oh, my gosh, this is a book that has to be written. And so he had a friend who knew of me, and next thing I knew that we were meeting, next thing I knew I was in Egypt. And so you, you actually visited Egypt. You, you met Mama Maggie. Tell us about she's like as a person. Well, you know, sometimes it's hard to describe people like this because <laughs> – uh, she she is a really interesting conundrum. In the book, we try to explain it, and I, I think she comes across as a very appealing character. She was a marketing professor. She was at the top of her field before she switched over to do full-time ministry. She is really pragmatic. She, know, she is um, quite a mover and a shaker, if you will, mm. on one hand. Okay, so you have that side of her, and then you have the other side of her that is a, uh, who is a person who, who, she loves Jesus. She, when I went with her to the desert, to the desolate places, Father Anthony's, um, place that you just mentioned. Mm-hmm, the monastery. And she would, yes, the monastery, and she would take such delight in, in the wind and the rocks and the sun. She, and would just murmur out, oh, Lord Jesus, oh, Lord Jesus. She has such a relationship with him. So she is really a contemplative person. She is very biblically oriented. She knows the scriptures backwards and forwards. If you saw her Bible, it is all marked up like any evangelical Bible that we would want to see. Now, that's an interesting thing that you're mentioning because a lot of of Western Christians, evangelical Christians, when we think of Eastern Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, we don't think of the Bible. We don't think of Bible study and underlining verses. We think of icons. We think of maybe some of the mystical aura of a liturgical service. But you, Mm. you found there a deeply rooted biblical faith. I found it all together. You know, and I'm very bibliocentric, if you will. And so when I went there and I saw the the sense of the ancient history of the church and the icons and things that were a little bit foreign to me, and at the same time that uh, when you go to a meeting of Mama Maggie's staff people, they stand up at the beginning of the meeting, and the first thing they do is they recite from memory Matthew five, six, seven. Those are the marching orders for their ministry. That's the Sermon on the Mount, right? Yes. Yeah. So the the biblical memory is so um, central to what they do and so central to what they teach the children in the garbage slums. And so I I saw that and and I really felt the power of the ancient history of this church that I of of which I knew not much, and at the same time the the sense of the immediacy of the scriptures, and you know what? Also, I have to say, just thinking about the early church, look at the Book of Acts, look at at the martyrdom of the people in those days, and then you look at the Egyptian church and what they have gone through over the years for the for the sake of the gospel. Mm. I mean, they have been so faithful. And so I, as an evangelical, I know nothing about Coptic Christianity, but it was like, whoa, these, you know, I am with them. We are, we are one. We had a Coptic Christian woman actually come to Beeson Divinity School some years ago as a student. And she mm-hmm. told these stories of, you know, deeply rooted Christian faith in that culture and against great adversity. 
And mm-hmm. that seems to be mm-hmm. reflected also in the Mama Maggie story. Um, mm-hmm. Now, so you say it's an untold story. Why is it untold? Well, um, I think part of it is untold because she has really operated under the radar. Mm. Now, here's a woman who has many death threats on her head. Here's a woman who whose ministry is probably the largest ministry in the Middle East. She has maybe 1,200 people who work with her wow. for very, very low wages. Believe me, mm. this is not. Uh, and and um, so I think it's untold just because they they felt like they were not ready for the story to be told. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, you know, we we wrote this book, we wrote this story that is full of the stories of people who have been rescued from the from the garbage slums and and young people who have come. Uh, to adulthood and whose lives have been turned around and, and then in turn, you know, the lives of their children. It's a generational turn. Yeah. And at the same time, oh my goodness, look at, look at this, um, in the world that we see right now, you know, this, this persecution of Coptic Christians. Yeah. You know, your story has kind of a double layered meaning to it. There is this remarkable woman, Mama Maggie in Cairo, who develops this tremendous compassion in the name of Jesus uh, to care for these dis- displaced people, these garbage children in the city mm-hmm. who need love, who need care, who need a good word, who need uh, basic education and food. And at the same time, this is a part of a culture in which Christianity is more and more oppressed. And you know, the, the whole reality of the, the Arab Spring, which promised so much hope mm. to that world, really mm. hasn't turned out that way, has it? Well, I, I, uh, I'm not a political commentator, and those are complicated issues. I will tell you, when I first went to Egypt was in the summer of 2013, and so you recall that was right after President Mohamed Morsi had been deposed yep. by popular demand in the yeah. street. And, Mo- and Mohamed Morsi, just for our listeners, was a mm-hmm. member of the Muslim Brotherhood, right? Right. Who came to power in the wake of the revolution that was the Arab Spring mm-hmm. in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. he was deposed to this great popular uprising. This is when you entered into the story of Mama Maggie. Yes, yeah. And so the, the people on the streets, if you Google that, you look at the marching in the streets. Remember, a Again, that one in ten of the people marching will be Christians. So obviously, a very popular uh, Muslim people on the street saying, "Let's get rid of this guy. He is not for Egypt." Okay. And so um, then there was a period of, of some volatility. And what happened in August of 2013, just before I first went to Egypt to write this this book, was the churches began to burn. And that was something that came through to the West. At least we got, you know, uh, we, we had, uh, those images of, of the churches burning, uh, America, uh, Egyptian Bible Society, Catholic churches, Catholic, um, convents, evangelical churches, Coptic churches, all over Cairo, upper, upper and lower Egypt, burning, burning, burning. And what happened in the wake of that, we write about it in the book, incredible, because what happened was on, on the, the, the ruined walls of the burned churches, messages began to go up, scrawled on the walls, or maybe a banner went up. What did they say? They said, we forgive you. We love you. And it wasn't like some email went out to all the 
you know, the Christian entities in Egypt saying, this is how we're going to respond. No, it was a movement of the Holy Spirit, you know. And this is, of course, this is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. Mm -hmm. And he didn't just Mm -hmm. say it once the way we sometimes uh, read it in the Gospels, but over and over again, repeatedly, Mm -hmm. Father, forgive them, forgive, forgive, forgive. Mm -hmm. And, you Mm -hmm. know, this is part of who who Christians are called to be and to follow Mm -hmm. uh, is Mm -hmm. Christ and his forgiveness that comes from the cross. What a, what a great uh, example of light in the midst of a lot of darkness. Yeah, we have so much to learn from them, our, our brothers and sisters there. I, I'm humbled by their courage. And uh, every person I interviewed, uh, I interviewed teenagers in Egypt who said, you know, we are willing to die for our faith. What teenagers say that in the U.S.? You know? mm, yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't want to be mean. I have teenage kids, you know, but... Um, it's just there is such a mindset there of uh, for the cause of the cross, we we will prevail in Jesus' name. Ellen, Ellen, tell us the story of the cave church. I know you've seen that in Cairo. What is it and what's its significance? Yeah, I wish I could explain it better. But, okay, you go into the, the garbage slum of Makatam. It is teeming. It is uh, full of activity and and need and all kinds of dark pain. And you climb up the hill into the, the limestone cliffs that are above the garbage village there. And you're in an area where actually the uh, stones were cut from these cliffs for the pyramids, mm. you know, about a gajillion years ago, maybe yeah. 6,000 years ago, right? right? And there is a natural formation there. The first Christians in the garbage village began to dig in the 1970s, and they they dug out what looked like a natural sort of place, and they found this huge natural cave that is lit from above. It can feed about 20,000 people. And so uh, when you go into the cave church, it is an enormous facility of of thanks and grace to God. It's a tourist stop. In, in Cairo, so you'll have people coming on buses through the garbage village, not so lovely, to see the cave church. And in 2011, just before the Arab Spring, it was a place where Egyptians on 11-11-11, November 11, 2011, they gathered to pray for their nation. They prayed first for personal repentance, then corporate repentance, then, oh, Lord, have mercy on our nation. I think we should do the same. So to hear them tell it, um, God really uh, visited them in that. They felt like the things that happened after that, they called it the birth pangs, unquote, of of their nation. Right now is a great time of opportunity in Egypt. This is still an unfolding story, isn't it? Be- as Christians continue to face new challenges and, and find in the reservoir of the Christian story uh, hope uh, and compassion to live out the gospel. Uh, Oz Guinness said about Mama Maggie that she is the white angel of Cairo's garbage city. Without her love, shining radiance, and tireless practical help, thousands of lives would be hell on earth. So you've brought a kind of living saint into our awareness by writing this book with Dr. Martin McCary. And thank you for doing that. Uh, before we have to close this podcast, Ellen, maybe you could say just a word about the, the Wilberforce Initiative because it's related in, in a significant way to what you've done in this book, I think. Very much so. I would say two things. I would say, one, Mama Maggie is the most humble person you would ever want to see. 
She just feels like she's doing what Jesus has called her to do. Second, Wilberforce, 21st Century Wilberforce Initiative. I feel, and maybe you feel the same way, or maybe you've been on this track for a while, Timothy, but I feel like in the time I have left in this life, I I really feel like the focus on our brothers and sisters who are persecuted for their faith around the world. What better could I invest in? And so I'm, you know, I, I am a storyteller. So it's my job to tell these stories of people who are in places that are probably pretty foreign to the rest of us who just go to Starbucks and have comfortable life. But, oh, my goodness, we are we are part of one church, and we in the West have a big job to do. If, uh, to to pray, to give, to do all kinds of things. People go to 21st Century Wilberforce Initiative website. See what you can do. Because, you know, if if we ignore this, it will be to our detriment. You and I first met through our friendship with the, the late Chuck Colson, and, and you actually collaborated with Chuck on a number of his books, including what I think is his best book, Being the Body which is really about the church. It's about Christian unity. Uh, and in some ways, I think you're telling the story of Mama Maggie fits very much into that pattern of what God is doing across the world in different traditions and confessions that own Jesus, that honor the scriptures, and that want to follow the will of God in this troubled time in which we live. So thank you so much for telling this story and uh, making it aware, uh, making us aware of it. Thank you for your good work, and I look forward to seeing you again at our next meeting and hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, Ellen. Thanks so much, Timothy. Appreciate it. God bless you. And you as well. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Mm-hmm.